right, guys, we're going to be Revelation chapter 1, as per the usual. So please go ahead and open up to there. We are presented with the first great vision in the book. John is seeing something here and then recording it for us to know. And his vision, of course, is of the glorious Christ. He's seeing the Lord Jesus in his glory, and then he's recording what he sees and writing it down so that we can have this revelation, this unveiling as well. If you remember from last week, this is not a vision for our eyes. Uh, John is describing what he sees uh, with physical characteristics, but this isn't what Jesus physically looks like. Rather, he's telling us what he is like through this like larger-than-life description. The Lord Jesus is revealing himself in a striking way for our comfort, for our encouragement, to, uh, to help us as the church, his, which is his body, as it were, um, to know certain things that will help us to endure through the difficulties that we encounter as Christians in this world, to help us live the Christian life. Uh, that is a Christian life that is often met with trials and tribulations. And so he's described this way, not so we might think, oh, this is what he looks like, but so that we may know what he has done and what he is doing, often through us even, and what he will do. That's the intent behind the descriptions that we read in the chapter. So let's read the passage again, and then we'll ask for God's blessing after that, and then we'll um, get to it. So... The, the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 9 in Revelation chapter 1. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze and refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am Excuse me, fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. For your word, and we thank you again also for letting us be here tonight to open it up together. And we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to have our lives built upon what your word reveals and the firm foundation that is Christ alone. We thank you for showing us these things, and we pray for understanding, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate our minds and our hearts that we might receive with gladness what your word is telling us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so last time we basically made it through verse 11. 
And we saw in the beginning part of the section that this vision was meant even to encourage John himself. John's the one who got this vision. And when he got it, you know, he wasn't in the best of cases, right? He was already suffering and enduring persecution because of his faith in Christ. And as Christians, we are all brothers in or partners in tribulation. That's what he's saying here in the very beginning. We don't go through these trials alone, certainly because we always have God himself with us. But as an added comfort, there is the fellowship of the church to help us endure these types of things as well. And if you remember, John is going through this tribulation, the suffering specifically as an exile on Patmos, and he's worshiping the Lord, and he hears a voice, and he turns to see the voice, which is a clue, actually, as to how we're really supposed to understand this, because you can't see a voice, right? You can turn to see where or who the voice is coming from, but you can't see a voice. That's literally impossible. And so it's expressed this way, and John will do this a number of times through Revelation, through this apocalypse. He'll speak in such a way that he's letting us know that these visions are a sensory, a sensory type of experience that aren't to be taken literally. Even in the passage that we just read, it's he has like hair like A, or he turned and he saw something like, and he said that over and over again. Um, something like. So again, remember the principle that I mentioned when we first started this series in the uh, in the very opening sermon, the uh, prolegomena, that with a prophetic apocalypse like this, we should assume something is literal only when we're told to take it literally. And John here is giving us a clue at this point that we shouldn't be taking this literally, meaning that when we get to heaven and we get to see God face to face, and especially when it comes to seeing Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who is completely equal to the Father, we shouldn't see Jesus expecting or a, a physical representation of Jesus looking like what we read in this chapter here. Hopefully that makes sense to you. I hope so. Because, I mean, it would be really awkward. And I, I don't think this could actually happen. But I say this for, a sake, uh, for the sake of an illustration. But imagine getting up to heaven and you're excited to see the Lord Jesus He's the, the first person you're wanting to see there even. He's the God-man, the Son of Man, and here he is, and he's coming to greet you and embrace you, and you keep looking over his shoulder or trying to look around him because you don't see this hair like white wool and eyes of flaming fire and bronze feet because you're looking for like an actual physical description of what we read here in Revelation 1. And you're trying to get around him, and this man who actually is Jesus is just some ordinary-looking guy. I mean, remember the disciples when they were walking on the road with him to Emmaus after his resurrection? He was in his glorified body at that point, and the two disciples didn't know that it was Jesus that they were talking to. But he wasn't this, like, striking, amazingly-looking look figure that we just read about here. So I say all that just to illustrate the point because, of course, we're going to know our Savior when— you know, at that moment that we get to see him face to face. We see in part now, as Paul told the Corinthians, but at that point, when we are in heaven, our knowledge won't be partial. We'll know fully when that time comes. And it's interesting, right? And again, it's not, it's not this fantastical imagery that we're seeing here in Revelation 1. He's, he's described this way so that we'll know what he's like, what he's doing, and what he does. But it's interesting, I think, that... You've never seen Jesus, and you don't know exactly what he looks like. But I don't think that you're going to need, like, Peter or your grandma or someone that's already in heaven to, like, introduce you to Jesus. Say, hey, look, here's Jesus. 
you're not going to need that to happen. Even though you've never seen what he looks like when you get to heaven, you're going to know who he is. Um, you'll, and the reason, even though you've never actually met him face to face or as a, you know, you've never shook his hand, obviously, right? Something like that. And the reason that is the case, the reason that you'll know who he is, is because you already know him. You're just simply going to know him even more. And he knows you and he loves you. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. Like when you arrive in heaven, even though you've never met Jesus face to face, right now um, your faith is not based on sight. But when you get to heaven, you're going to know him. You're not going to need someone to introduce you to him at that point. <laughs> well, I don't know if we'll fall down as you were dead because you're not going to have any sin. You'll fall down in worship, I would think. That would be appropriate. Um but you'll see him. You'll just know him. I can only imagine like how great that's going to be. Now, when he turns to hear this or to see this voice, he sees seven lampstands in the midst of them. Is one like son of, the Son of Man? More on that in a moment. So let's first consider these seven lampstands, seven golden lampstands. Um, we've talked about the number seven before. No need to get into great detail on that matter. Just remember its meaning. It means like fullness, complete, or perfection. And we don't need to wonder what they're supposed to be even because Jesus explains the vision in verse 20. He says that the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. So if you remember, the seven churches are the seven specific short messages are the seven churches that are given those seven specific short messages that we'll read about in chapter 2 and 3. But also, seven churches are chosen because the whole book of Revelation is for more than just those seven churches. Again, seven, so full, complete, perfect. In other words, this the message to the seven churches and the rest of Revelation are for all the churches that exist in the time between Jesus' first and second coming. That's why the, the number seven there to denote that you know full meaning. And so we will always need, um, we'll always have things to learn from what is recorded here in Revelation. Uh, this letter is for every church that exists after it was written. And so also the notion of the lampstand here isn't like a random occurrence. It's not made up on the spot or something. There's something significant about lampstands that we should already know about as God's people. And so maybe you're a little familiar with this already because of the Jewish holiday. You've seen those candelabras for that are associated usually with Hanukkah, right? And they have like the, the one stem and they branch out and they have the all the other little candle holders on them. You've seen that before. Um, yeah, menorah. The, it's a little different for Hanukkah. They're, for Hanukkah, there's nine, but the that's not what we have here. Um, there's seven, and that's the, the ancient menorah that they would use. It's the one that uh, was designed back in um, when God first uh, gave the instructions to Moses for the tabernacle and all the elements that were going to go around with it. It's Exodus 37, um, 17, 24. It actually goes through all of those details, and they're really ornate and beautiful. And beautiful. They weren't created to make the tabernacle and the temple eventually fancy though. God's not like wanting to be like some interior design influencer by the way he made these things. And the reason for it was to convey a theological message. And so in, in Numbers 8, 1 through 4, we see God instructing Moses and Aaron to light the lamps on the lampstand. And then he gives instruction after that concerning the cleansing of the Levites. Remember the Levites were the, um, the tribe that was responsible for the priestly duties. And so he's giving the, the Levites the instructions on for the work they're supposed to do and the cleansing that they're supposed to have before they do that work. Uh, 
the holy work, as it were. And so from this, what we see is that this lit lampstand with the seven lights on it, the seven candles on it, is supposed to represent the presence of the Lord, this, this beautiful light. God, you know, is light and there is no darkness in him at all, right? First John 1 5 says. And so the, the candlestick themselves are supposed to represent that. And so the presence of the Lord. And so you may even hear people today say something like, well, God has removed his lampstand from that church. You may hear people talk like that sometimes. Christians say, say that. And what they mean by that is that the specific congregation has compromised the gospel at some point or they've lost the gospel altogether. And so it's a way of saying that that church isn't with God anymore. Or better, actually, that God isn't with them any longer. But here in Revelation, Jesus is with them. He's in the midst of them. He's walking among them, these seven candlesticks. And this is true of Christ with the church in every age. Jesus is with us. We're his body even. The temple in which all the old covenant ceremonies were upheld and observed has been destroyed. It was destroyed in 70 AD. And if you remember from the Old Testament, God dwelt there with his people in the, in the temple. The glory of the Lord descended down onto the temple back in 1 Kings. And so, as it were, if someone wanted to go to God, there was a way in which we should understand that as them as having to go to the temple where the Holy of Holies was, having to come to the nation of Israel, as it were. Now, of course, God was still everywhere at this time. He was still omnipresent, like we would say. But for the sake of his interaction with mankind, his mediation to mankind, he had to go. There was the temple, and it played this significant role. But there is still, even in that context, a large curtain in the temple, if you remember that. And that large curtain prevented people from going into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest was allowed to enter into there at specific times. And so if people wanted to meet with the Lord, well, there was a barrier there. It required some further mediation. So I'll fast forward now to the Son of God's incarnation. Jesus goes to the cross. He dies for the sin of those who have been chosen in him, for the sin of all who would trust in him. And then when he dies, we read of this massive curtain in the temple that is blocking the wet entrance to the Holy of Holies, it's torn from the top down, right? You would typically think if a giant curtain in a building, somebody was to go do it, they would, because we're people, we would not tear it from the top down. You'd have to have like a huge ladder or something like that. But it's torn. It's a supernatural act that the curtain is torn in half. And that, of course, signified that the access to God was not blocked in that in that temple anymore. I, I have no idea if... um. The unbelieving Jews of that time, like, decided to fix that curtain. The Bible doesn't say, talk about it. I would think that they probably did uh, because of their, you know, the tradition they were used to. I don't know. But it wouldn't matter, though, because the way to God was now publicly made known through the death of the Son of God. It is through him. Through Jesus, we have access to God. And then in about 40 years from that event, the whole temple goes down. Now, at the moment um, Jesus went to the grave and was resurrected, the temple had lost, lost its theological significance anyway. And so John has this vision of Jesus, the Son of Man, more again, more on that in a moment, and he's walking around these seven lampstands, which are supposed to represent the church and God's presence before the church, right? Because wherever the church is, if the true church, God is with them as well. Correct? That's why the, the lampstand is, is there. And so for John, and we should be seeing the same things here, as G.K. Beale notes, he says the latter-day temple has already been inaugurated in the church. In other words, 
the church, the people of God, is the temple in this time period, the Latter Day Temple. It sounds like Latter Day Saints, right? Because we're 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 conditioned to hearing that and having our our guard come up, and that's fine. Um, it's not bad, but Latter Day just is a, is another way of saying last days, which we are in. Um, and so the the lampstands represent the church as the true temple during the time between the first and second comings of the Lord, which would also mean then, and quote Beal again, true Israel is no longer limited to a nation, but it encompasses all peoples. In other words, the gospel goes out into Gentile nations and people who believe, no matter where they are at, people who by the grace of God see their sin and trust in God's provision for that sin problem will be saved. And the temple of God is everywhere the church is then. That's why we send missionaries to places. People in the Old Covenant, they had to go to Israel. Now, true Israel just takes the Lord with them because Christ is with us. That's what we are supposed to see when we see the Son of Man walking among the candlesticks. The candlesticks represent churches and specifically God's presence with the churches. And the, the, the presence of God, the temple of God now is the people of God. And Jesus is with them. He is with us. It's not this localized temple anymore. It's the people. Now, the Son of Man, well, that is certainly Christ Jesus. The title goes back to Daniel seven thirteen to 14, where it's attributed to the coming Messiah, uh, perhaps even a, pers- a personified nation of Israel, of which, of course, we've talked about before, how the nation of Israel was like a type of Christ, and that Israel was sometimes even referred to as the Son of God. And there's a few other specific things as well, too. Like you might think of how Israel had to uh, pass through water uh, before they went into the promised land. They had to pass through the Red Sea. And then First Peter talks about that parting of the Red Sea like as a baptism. And, and, and the, when the, the promised land was the, the wilderness first, right? They were tempted in the wilderness for those 40 years. Well, Jesus, he gets baptized in water, and then he's immediately led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he's uh, for 40 days, and he, at the end he's tempted by the, the devil. And he's, he's better than Israel, right? Because Israel in that temptation, they fail. None of them are even allowed to go in the promised land. Jesus is obedient. He doesn't give in to the, the evil one, and you know the kingdom is soon to be inaugurated in him. So Israel's this type personality, and so Son of Man is alluding to that. And further, the Son of Man was the most often used title of Jesus for himself. If you're familiar with the gospel accounts like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's a total of 81 times where Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, more than any other title uh, that, that exists. So Denny Burke says this about the title. It says that it identifies him as the heavenly Messiah who is also human and will receive an eternal kingdom. So this Jesus, this, excuse me, glorious Jesus, this heavenly Messiah, who's also a true man, he is with his churches. But what's really important is the way that he's with his churches. He's in the midst of them. And here's where the description of him becomes so important for us to know that Christ is with us in these ways, doing these things, having these capabilities, being this way. And so that brings us to 13 verse 13 to 16 in which we get the description and going through these descriptions here uh which i think john probably in some ways struggled to communicate with the human words the the things that he was seeing about the divine king of kings here but what we see 
is that with these descriptions, they're pointing us back to what he executes in redeeming us to the offices that he upholds, the office of prophet, priest, and king. Now, before we deal with the specifics of the description, let's turn back to the book of Daniel really quick. So go to Daniel. There's a lot of similarities here. And Daniel chapter 7. is what We're going to look at two passages in Daniel, but first Daniel 7. Remember, the, um, the revelation given to John is filled with allusions back to the Old Testament. And it's, it's not, again, even the candlesticks, that wasn't something you know, new to God's people. That was something they would know about because it was already discussed. Daniel chapter 7, and we'll read just two verses, 13 and 14. So we read, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Okay, there's that son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So some of those things we already read about before verse 9, right? About the son of man. But now here we have the son of man being referred to. And he's coming to the ancient of days. So remember that at this point in Daniel, son of man Ancient of days, two different people, right? Is what it would seem like. Because it has to be a different person, one person coming to another. Then let's look over in Daniel 10. Remember that for later. Daniel 10, 5 through 6. Verse 5 begins, I lifted up my eyes and looked and beheld a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from as around his waist his body was like a barrel his face like the appearance of lightning his eyes like flaming torches his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude and i saw i daniel alone saw the vision for the men who were with me did not see the vision but a great trembling fell upon them and they fled and hid themselves so lots of the same kinds of descriptions right in daniel 10 compared to revelation chapter 1 Let's go back to Revelation. Continues on, yeah. Um, so perhaps Daniel and John even saw the exact same thing, whatever it is that they're exactly seeing. Um, and they just, you know, respectfully both described it in the way that they did. I'm not sure, but we're certainly meant to think back to what Daniel saw here with John's vision. So first we read that he has this long robe on and there's a golden sash around his chest. Simply put, that, that's the familiar description of the priest in the Old Covenant. If you were to look at the description of the priest's attire in Exodus 28, you would see those elements of the long robe and the sash across the chest, and a little bit more as well, too. But it's reminding us that Jesus is our great high priest. He's passed through the heavenly places. He's offered himself up as a spotless lamb, and he himself mediates between us and God. He goes between the two parties, between God and man, and he works reconciliation, being both God and man himself. We're reminded of his work of atonement and his intercession by these clothes that he's uh, that John is describing. And we need to know these things, church. We should never forget that the only reason we have reconciliation with God is because of what God has accomplished in and through Jesus. 
And it's not like we're going to receive grace and salvation from Christ. And then we're made a kingdom of priests ourselves. We read that already as well. And then now, since we're a king of priests, now it becomes up to us to complete the work. That's not what we're supposed to think. Not at all. Christ Jesus maintains his priestly role. That's why John is, is seeing this, to remind us that Jesus maintains his high priest's role. And he keeps us. He holds us fast. He's the one who is persevering us. He's the one who's continuing to sanctify us. This is a function of his priestly office on our behalf. And it's important for us to know that, especially as we're going to have to potentially endure trials of different various kinds. And then we read that his hairs of his head are white, like white wool, like snow. There's a couple things here. For one, we're meant to notice the Lord's purity, his, his holiness. White is often a symbol for that. He took our sin upon himself, but it didn't make him a sinner. He paid its price. And for from a justification standpoint, meaning that we're declared righteous by his acts and work, we too have that same holiness. Our sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ, and we're clothed with the same holiness that Christ has. That's why we must never think that our, our good works somehow contribute to our sanctification, that our good works somehow make us holy. We already have that. We have what Christ has, and what he has is perfect, and so we don't need to add to it. Uh, the, the angels in the throne room in Isaiah's vision cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And we see that being commented upon or represented in his hair being white. A little before that in Isaiah chapter 1 and one eighteen. The Lord says to Isaiah, he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They shall, Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like white wool. So the exact same things that we're, that we're reading here. Jesus is holy. He is he's without sin. And that righteousness is also accredited to us through faith. So we see those exact same things, and he keeps us in, in this condition too. His feet are burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Again, what do you do when you refine metal in a, in, in a furnace? You're purifying it, right? You're taking out the imperfections. So these are, these are, these are elements that are, that are supposed to remind us, help us know that Jesus is holy, that he is pure, he's without sin, he's the only one who can save us, and he keeps us in that condition as well too that he earned for us it's his his moral uprightness that is in view and it's that when god sees us as sinners who are forgiven it's because of the way that christ is he sees us clothed with that same righteousness that christ is clothed with plus this is also helping us to know that jesus actually is god as well he's not less than god he's not from god he's not eternally submitted to the father he humbled himself in the incarnation, but he's still true God, and we need to know that. A Savior that is anything less than true God cannot actually save. And so remember, this was the same language taken to speak of the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 10. A lot of those, the, fur, the white hair, the, the eyes, the, the bronze body parts, same types of things that were referring to the Ancient of Days in Daniel 10. But there... Daniel was trying, he, he, he's wanting to speak about the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days. And that description was of the Ancient of Days. He didn't actually describe the Son of Man in Daniel 10. 
There's nothing wrong with that, of course. He's making a distinction between them. The Son of Man is specific to Jesus in the Incarnation and not to the Father. But that doesn't mean that the Son of Man also isn't the Ancient of Days, or rightly called the Ancient of Days. And so John's point here, in, in pulling up the same sort of imagery that Daniel used, is to say that Jesus is, is God. He is the Ancient of Days as well, too. He is true God, true man as well, but he is also God. He's not a lesser God. He is of the same essence of the Father and the Spirit. There's one will between them. In every ontological way, that means in every way of his being or essence, they're all equal. And John is making this clear to us by trying to by bring us back to this parallel in Daniel chapter 10. We see it even in the testimony of the Son of Man, which is in verse 17. When he says this about himself, he says, fear not, I am the first and the last. He's the ancient of days, in other words, right? First and last. So we have to move through these kind of fast for the sake of time. But the other descriptions that we read here also line up with the ancient, ancient of days from Daniel 10, further strengthening the reality that Daniel is God, or excuse me, that Jesus is God and the same God that Daniel was talking about. His eyes were like a flame of fire. He's a righteous judge, in other words, and there is nothing that can be hidden from him as well. He's a king who sees all in his kingdom. And even though we've rightly made a, a proper distinction in previous uh, Wednesday evenings about the two kingdoms, there we should need to recognize and remember that they're both still Christ, and Jesus sees all and will judge all in righteousness. There's no way to escape the gaze of Christ, friends. He knows the sin we enjoy. And we can't make excuse for it. Our only hope is to look to him for forgiveness, to cry out to him and repent and confess your sin and desire mercy. And the good news, of course, is that Jesus will never reject anyone who truly does that. Because if you do that, it's because the Father has given you to Jesus and Jesus receives all that the Father gives to him. He'll lose none of them even. We'll talk about that in a moment. But be aware as well, that you don't want to be like certain people. Uh, Joel, Joel Beakey talks about a, a radio commentator who asks the question of his audience that says like, oh, um, do you, uh, what was his, his question was, do you believe in God? And so it's just a basic question, right? And one of the responders said this, he said, I don't know whether there is a God and I don't really care, but if there is a God and if there is a day of judgment, I'll have a thing or two to say to him. When I look at everything that has gone wrong in the world, I'll stand before God and ask him my questions, looking him in the eye. Well, who could look into these eyes of fire and presume to think that you can ask any questions of him? He's the righteous judge. He's all powerful. Even his voice is described like a roar of many waters, described like a trumpet before that. And by the way, water in scripture is also often associated with judgment. Think of the flood, right? Nothing more clear than that. It's also associated with a judgment unto life as well. So think of the living water from the throne. The point being, Christ the King will judge rightly. Whether it's found in, in want of um, explanation or it's found in having been united, uh, having your sins forgiven in Christ. And so out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. This phrase is mentioned six times in Revelation, so we can talk about it more later. But it's in step with his role as a prophet. A prophet communicates God's word. And his face shines like the sun at full strength. This is a praiseworthy element for us who love the Lord. 
It reminds us of the song of Deborah and Barak in Judges 5. It was a long time ago that we were there, so I'm sure you don't remember that. But the end of that song, after God grants them victory, they speak of this aspect. And here in Revelation, it's an allusion to that, showing us that Christ Jesus is the warrior king who's worthy of praise. And there's probably another side to this coin as well, that we who are in the light, we love the light. By the light, I mean, of course, the that we are in Jesus and because he's the light of the world. But if you don't love the light, then this light shining like a sun at full strength is a horrible thing, isn't it? I mean, just think of the reality of us now, even. If we look up at the sun in the sky, and never do that, by the way. I'm not saying to do that. If, but if you do that, you'll damage your eyes. And we are nearly 92 million miles away from the sun. But imagine before that ball of being before that ball of fire, like at arm's length. What would it do to you? Instantly die. You would instantly die, which is what we see happening with John here, which I think actually gives you a picture of the torment of hell, doesn't it? Father, Son, and Spirit want people to know these things. So the chapter closes with verse 19 and Jesus telling him to record the vision that he'll see. And then he explains a series of sevens in the vision in verse 20. But I want to close tonight with thinking about what happened before that in verse 17 and 18. Now, verse 17 is John's response to what he saw. And he fell to his feet as dead. He's overwhelmed. Remember, John is the close friend of Jesus. We talked about that last week. It's similar to what happens to Daniel in chapter 8 in his vision. Christ's enemies in the Garden of Gethsemane fall backwards when Jesus said, I am, declaring his glory. Enemies fall away from Christ, but John isn't an enemy. John falls forward to his feet, and Christ Jesus is there to lift him up. Now, how many times does Jesus do that, take the person who is humbled before him, and he lifts him up? Those who are proud stay down, but those who are humbled he cares for. He doesn't break the bruised reed. He's gentle and lowly. Every time a person is saved, he has done it. And we even see examples of it in gospel accounts, like how he was towards sinners and healing them, for example. And so his right hand, we read, comes under John to pick him back up. And he tells him to fear not. That's the same hand, by the way, which he was holding those seven stars. Uh, the seven stars being the angels of the seven churches we read in verse 20. Now, those might be literal angels, and they might refer to elders of the churches. That's a debate that we'll touch on next time. But the point is this. This is his right hand. He has control, friends. It's you know the, the hand that's supposed to emphasize strength. And that's, it's not a knock towards left-handed people. It's just a reality that most people are right-handed. And it's the hand that symbolizes power and safety even for those of us who are united to Christ in faith. So he's gracious to them. Um, Many passages of scripture speak of the right hand of God as a comfort to believers because it's strong. He holds us there. Nothing can take us from it even. And so that's an encouragement to us. So he takes up John with his right hand, pointing John and us back to hundreds of promises from God concerning his care for his people. And he says, fear not, for I am the first and the last. Again, Jesus is the ancient of days. He is eternal. And we know for sure that, that this is specifically the Son of God here because of the next phrase. I mean, the Father and the Spirit didn't die and then live. Only Jesus. And he says that he is the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. He lives forevermore. Why? 
to make intercession for the saints, we read in Hebrews 7. He lives forevermore to do that. And he also has authority over life and death. And specifically, it's over death here that is mentioned. He has the keys to death in Hades. He can open or he can shut that lock. You know who doesn't have them? You don't. I don't. Uh, Satan doesn't have them. He doesn't have that authority. The devil doesn't have them. Demons don't have them. No pastor anywhere does. The Pope doesn't have them. No religious figurehead has them. Nobody but Christ has the keys to death in Hades. And so that would tell us then that he's the only refuge for the sin-sick soul. He's the door to life. The gate of the sheepfold, he's the door that opens up to the narrow way. And he's the only one with the keys to death as well. There's nowhere else we can go, friends. If you don't go to Christ in this life for salvation, and then when you stand before death's door, it will open for you. And it open unto eternal death. But for the one who has in this life looked to Christ, has repented of their sin, and lives a life marked by repentance because they've been born from above, then it's as if that door to death will be locked when you stand before it. And when you die, you'll enter into eternal life, not what we would otherwise call eternal death. Why? Why is that the case? It's because Christ went through that door for you. He defeated death. He's got the key to it now. And he lives forevermore, we read. And so I would encourage you, friends, think deeply about these things. Think seriously about what is written here in Revelation to us. We're meant to. Yahweh gave us this book so that we would do that very thing. And if you aren't trusting Christ for salvation already, well, let today be the day of salvation. Like John, who looked to the Lord and died, Christ lifted him up. And so you all as well, I would say the same, look to Christ. Don't look to yourself. Look to Christ. Look to who, to who he is and what he's done and ask for grace and mercy and live. Let's pray. God, you are mighty. And this description that we have of you here is, we know, so rich. Uh, so many more things that we could say and think about, Lord. And we pray that you would give us over to thinking about the way that you are and what it is that you have done. And that that very act of doing it, of doing that, if we do not know you in love and there there be people in here who aren't trusting you for salvation, we pray that through considering who it is that you are and what it is that you've done, you would soften the heart and work new life. And for those who already are trusting in you and are saved by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, that contemplating these things would cause us to grow in love and adoration for you. You are worthy of all honor and praise, Lord. And we pray that you would help us to be heavenly minded always so that we might be much earth, we might be of much earthly good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Any questions or comments? Anything not clear? Now's the time. Okay. Wheels, and it reminds you of Ezekiel too, and like the wheels of the chariots as well too. So, a lot of the so, so that's good you bring that up. 
what we should know is, again, a lot of the prophetic imagery that we see in Revelation, it's not new. God has already kind of, he's revealed these things. You need to know your Old Testament as a Christian as well. Read your Old Testament because it helps you to understand the new. And really the New Testament has priorities, what we would say as, as in a hermeneutic way and how we understand the Bible. So the New Testament helps us to understand the Old Testament. So just like for tonight, where we're seeing here John describe the ancient of days as Jesus. Well, you wouldn't necessarily know that in Daniel, right? But since we see John doing it, now we look back at that and we say, oh, look, he's describing, you know, this is God. This is truly God. So it's very foundational. Okay. Okay.